Hello and welcome to the Leading Communities podcast, brought to you by Aspire for You CIC and produced by That's All Media CIC. We're on a mission to understand what it takes to help communities to start caring, keep caring or care more about an issue. I'm Kitchawande and I'll be your host. Welcome to Leading Communities. I'm uh, Kit Chawande, Director of Aspire for You. We are joined by Dr. Monique Charles. For anyone who is joining us for the first time, Leading Communities is all about getting young people, not just young people, communities and leaders to start caring, keep caring or care more. And we're here to share the best knowledge um, around us from a range of uh, communities. So, uh, Dr. Monique Charles, would you uh, kindly introduce yourself? Hey everyone, I'm Dr. Monique Charles and hmm, where do I start? So I think let's start with the title, I suppose, doctor. So that means I have a PhD. I did a PhD in sociology at Warwick University and my PhD was actually in grime. So um, that was now it's not necessarily as considered as um, revolutionary, but when I first came out with it back in, well, when I first started in 2010, it was something that people didn't even imagine that you could actually do so I'm really happy that I have done it um, and it's helped to kind of show the value of um, you know the music and the culture and the people that are connected to that music um, to show that it very much has a space and a place in British history and obviously broader than Britain itself. So the, the fact that you know you were able to actually make grime work in an academic arena for me is already telling me that you know, you're, you, you, there, there, are, there are cells in, in your brain that are, that are maybe, you know what I mean, uh, on, on the superior spectrum. So can you tell us a, a bit of the backstory and, and how did you get here? Okay, so um, if we start, um, I am all, I'm that sort of person that likes to do thought experiments, right? So I like to take random things and think about them and see if there are connections. Um, I've always, always been like that. So if we start with um, the example that I usually give is when I was about eight, um, back then it was in year four, I think it's the equivalent of year four now, and that's when we used to learn fractions. I think people learn them a bit earlier now, so you might learn them in year two, but back then it was in year four. And when I was learning about maths, I was learning about fractions, I was using fractions and percentages to try and understand the social world in terms of black, white, boys and girls. I mean, it's much more complex than that. But I'm a natural sociologist. um, So I've always been trying to understand how the world works. Anyway, so that was just an eight, just to kind of show that fractions and percentages, once I'd learned that I was trying to make sense of the world. Okay, let's fast forward. Um, I've always, always been interested in singing. So I was dabbling in singing for a bit. But, you know, I knew I was going to go to university. I was kind of, it was just, I was told I was going it just felt natural, so I went to university. I was always interested in race. Um, I was also interested in the brain, much like you, or what makes people tick. So maybe not in a necessarily a completely scientific sense, but definitely what makes people tick, what motivates people, the social world. So I did my first degree, um, and that was in psychology and race and cultural studies. Um, I kind of put music and singing on the burner um, because I thought I had to do something really academic or, you know, that kind of thing. Um, so the thing and was which university at, was that? Sorry. That was at Middlesex. That was at Middlesex University. And um, so, yeah, that was my first degree. And then once I'd finished that, I started with the singing again, you know, that calling, that music thing was kind of pulling me back. And so... Oh, what I, kind of music were you into? So, um, I mean, I was into all sorts, but the sort of things that I sung, I sung lots of different types of things. I think my home is like soul R&B jazz, but I have been in um, church choirs. So like singing in Latin and French and Spanish, all that sort of stuff um, as well. I've been in different community choirs, singing gospel, singing Christmas carols, all sorts of things. Um so yeah, that that was the kind of singing stuff I was doing. And then I had the study bug because I'm interested in the social world, trying to make sense of like everything. The study bug was still there. So then I went to go and do a master's and I was interested in race still. And at this time I was like, yeah, I, psychology I'm interested in. It's cool what, people, what, make, what makes people tick, but I really want to understand this social world, this race stuff. So I did a master's in race and ethnic relations that was at Birkbeck, which is part of University of London. And although it's called race and ethnic relations at um, that particular uh, master's, which is a political science master's, 
looked at gender as well. It looked at class. Um, sexuality um, wasn't really on the syllabus at that time um, in the way that like you see it being spoken about now. Um, so it was mainly race, class and gender. And it looked at it in terms of policy, hence the political science side of things. And also it looked at it in terms of culture, which is really why I was there. I enjoyed the political, like the policy side. It was really useful to help me make sense of the social world, but I was there about the culture, knowing that my dissertation was going to have an element of race or blackness and music. So it was when I was doing my master's thesis, um, which is a bit like the dissertation, dissertation, let's just call it that. Um, I was looking at hip hop, you know, I suppose the classic, when you think of black music, you think of hip hop. So I was looking at hip hop and then I was looking at how the most successful artists conformed most strongly to racial stereotypes. Um, so for, for women, um, some of the stereotypes of black women, um, if we say in the American South, um, you know, during slavery or enslavement and colonial periods and sharecropping, you know, you had different stereotypes, but the Jezebel, the kind of loose woman, was one of the kind of tropes that were used. Um, and this, you can kind of see... So so, so just to def define trope for me and okay. spend two or three extra seconds maybe elaborating on some of the microculture of that American South and how that had an okay. impact on, on American culture. Okay, tropes. All right. I, maybe I should remix that and just say stereotypes because that might feel a bit more, um, mm -hmm. a bit, uh, maybe a bit more accessible. Familiar. Yeah. Yeah. It's a bit more accessible. So um, it, stereotypes are kind of crude images or, and, and by crude, I mean, I don't want to use the word stereotype. So then they're not true. Um, things about a particular mm. group of people. Um, mm. I mean, even if there are elements of truth in it, they are completely exaggerated and almost made completely fictitious. Yeah. So if we're thinking yeah. about the Jezebel stereotype, that may be some um, a woman that's considered to be a bit loose, um, quite hypersexual, you know, and, you know, mm. that's where she gets most of her worth from. So when I was looking at the most mm. successful crossover um, hip-hop artists, the female artists at that particular period, they conform most strongly to this stereotype of being sexually available, mm. that sort of thing. So they, so, so are we talking, are we talking Blue Cantrell? Are we talking Little Kim? With, yeah, we're talk, yeah, this is we're talking about Little Kim when I was analysing her in particular. Um, so we, I was kind of exploring that, but and then the same thing with um, the men. So at that time, the the artist I looked at in a lot of depth was Fifty Cent because he was quite a big deal at that time, and he conformed most strongly to the aggressive, hyper masculine stereotype of you know how men were portrayed as dangerous and would you know take your wives and all that sort of stuff that used to um, I suppose that was propagated. Um, in during slavery and you know in the American South and sharecropping that sort of thing. But what I was also doing is I was looking at how the the music industry kind of capitalised on those uh, racist ideas or those racist stereotypes. Um, and through doing that, these artists obviously buying into the stereotypes, even though I mean they have a certain degree of choice, but they're up against an industry. Um, how that how that representation helped to kind of continue the process of racism for, you know, for, for black people in everyday life. So, for example, when I went to, on holiday to Greece, people didn't know me. They automatically assumed I was American because the idea of black Britishness, at, you know, in the early 2000s or the early noughties, it was still an anomaly for, you know, many people in the world. So they'd be like, yo, 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 what, you know, what's happening? They would automatically assume that that is that would be home for me because of the hip hop and things that they've seen. So I was looking at that and I was also looking at the political economy of the music industry, which is much different now um, because back then, you know, we had still had CDs, cassettes were kind of going. So I don't know if the young people are familiar with cassettes, but, um, but looking at the idea of, you know, artists would get like a million dollar record deal and people think, whoa, they've made it. But actually that million dollars that you're getting Right, tax is going to come out of that, and then you've got to pay for everything out of that. And it's a forward charge. So That's that million is between until the next album. So yeah, exactly. If the next thing doesn't come out for two, three years. You know what I mean? Exactly. Yeah. So and so you make money um, based on how many CDs or units you sell, CDs um, or cassettes. But 
every for every CD you sell, you know, if you've paid songwriters or, you know, other people have got licenses and distribution and all these things attached to it. So out of a £10, let's say £10 CD, you may get 15 cents or so, 15 pence. So you, you know, so you have to sell so much. And I was comparing that to the sharecropping, which happened in the American South once um, slavery was was ended or had ended or was coming to an end and what sharecropping was in the american south was you you may have heard about you know um african americans picking cotton and so they would live on on a plantation and they would pick cotton and they would obviously be doing all of the labor picking the cotton and everything else but the industry or you know the 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 person who owned the land would be the one that would make most of the profit and they would get the 15 pence or 15 cents out of the 10 pounds worth yeah so almost that you own the land i work on the land i get a share of the crop but it's not like it's an even split either it's almost Uh, remotely yeah you know what i mean i'm still an employee yeah so so that was kind of what i was doing in the masters but anyway that's a a long story short when i was doing this this was in the uh, mid noughties so 2005 to 2007 i was doing this and when I was looking up stuff about hip hop, there were there were loads of books about it. You know, Trisha Rose is a famous academic. Um, you know, Nelson George. There's there's loads of loads of them um, that have all of this scholarly work. And around this time, also, we had politicians in the UK condemning all this gangster rap because they didn't know if it was called grime or esky or whatever at the time. All this gangster rap and stuff. And I thought this couldn't happen in the US. Not that we need to be the US, but I thought this couldn't happen in the US because there's a body of academic scholarly work where academics can come out and show, okay, hip hop has done this, it's generated this GDP or it's representing this culture and it can kind of break it down and help a dialogue and, and you know, and explain things and break things down. And that wasn't happening here. And so when I finished the masters, I knew I wanted to do a PhD um, and I knew that I had to do it on black British music and grime was happening at the time. I knew that people didn't necessarily understand the sociological value of it. And because of that, I thought if I get in and I interview people, people will will tell the truth. Well, I'm assuming, I'm hoping that they'll tell the truth because they're not going to be thinking, oh, yeah, when I did this back then, kind of inflate their story or inflate their role in it or anything like that. I can try and capture the raw truth, try and make sense of it and show, look, there is value here because for politicians to be condemning kids, yeah, they've created a massive scene to even get on the radar of politicians. And there was something happening there. And I wanted to do my part to capture that. So I suppose it kind of connects to your caring, um, you know, your three caring yeah, yeah. aspects of caring. So it was really yeah. caring. Yeah. I thought, no, I can't have this. I need to get involved. Something's happening here. And it needs to get into mm. the academy so that, you know, at some point it can be on the curriculum and taught just like any other genre of music. Excellent. And I think that's what's really interesting because so what I believe you've described is really that you took a strategic intervention into getting people to start caring. You could see a force wind come in that could be corrupted and you then thought, oh, wait a minute, if I can interject this with a legitimacy, which is what academia brings, I can disrupt those with the ill intentions and possibly actually pave a way for for people to achieve a realisation that, oh, wait a minute, within this genre is a magic within this genre is is a a human representation like you know what i mean there's people trying to get somewhere here let's not just demonize them okay so you saw that you appear to be a person that understands that it's not always about quick wins yeah you then started to do this strategic work behind the scenes so thinking as maybe you didn't see yourself as a leader there but i can definitely see that those are leadership qualities how did the conversation go when you go, I'm going to study grime, A, and B, how did that get funded? Okay, so I'm going to study grime funding. Um, when I was doing it, they were not in the same <laughs> sentence, okay? They were not in the same sentence, but I knew I had to do it. So I did my PhD part-time, I self-funded, so I was working and I was doing the PhD. So I had to, you know, make use of my, as as one of my friends says, make use of my nine to five to fund my five to nine. Yeah. So that's how I use, that's how I use my time. I do very economical with my time. When I was telling people I was doing a PhD, because 
I don't know how many of, of the listeners will know the difference between universities. So Warwick University is Russell Group. So it's it's classified as, you know, being up there with Oxford and Cambridge. Um, the Russell Group Collective, you know, you may have heard of the Ivy League in the US, the Harvard, you know, it's kind of like an elite set of universities. So Russell Group is that and Warwick is, is in there. So for those people who knew that I was going to Russell Group, they'd be like, oh, wow, you're going, you know, well done. What are you going to study? Grime. What are you going to this big, big university to study grime? And so after a while, and my journey has been quite interesting because I, I find I tell people less and less because I realise that people don't necessarily understand. Like me talking to you now, you can recognise that this is a leadership thing that I've stepped into. I was aware of this because I looked at historically what happened, you know, if we look at how blues started we look at people involved in blues now we look at how jazz started we look at the majority of people involved in jazz now and we look at the process of capitalism and colonization of black musical forms if if nobody starts to get in there to change that that cycle is going to happen it's still happening even though i'm in the mix now i'm in the tumble dryer it's still happening but it makes it more difficult because i'm there right that's a whole nother conversation but people don't always necessarily grasp what I'm doing and then if they do grasp what I'm doing because I've told them some stuff people run with it because they want to be the leader because they want the quick wins so for example two of the people I interviewed in my PhD so with my PhD I went to go and do research it involved interview my particular research involved interviewing people it involved going to um, grime raves some garage raves um, concerts for observation that's a research method technique and also analyzing lyrics and sonics of, of different songs right so those are the three things that I did I'm, it's a shame even though I'm in my um, studio of my library I haven't got my PhD with me that's actually at home I should have bought it so I could show you but some of the people I interviewed were journalists they had been writing about and documenting um, you know writing about grime for the best part of what a decade by that point it's only when I started to say in layman's terms I didn't say there's no scholarly work I was saying there are no books really on the subject after the interaction with me books have come out and um, which is great but the but the the narrative um, and the detail of research isn't necessarily there which can kind of shift the 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 narrative um and also if we I mean there's many armed dynamics to this but you know credit hasn't been given necessarily for you know inspiring ideas um for, for example i gave a talk and one of the examples i always give is storms should be on um on the uh curriculum just as much as mozart yeah, so I've, I've been using this example in almost every talk didn't that make it into um didn't that make it into the metro it made it into the metro it made it on, onto good morning britain but the the but where i gave the talk that university was working in collaboration with that with a particular charity who ran with the idea who misunderstood the idea but the idea got sensationalized and put national and there's no credit as to where it originally came from which is me so i've got videos on my youtube channel you can see me talking about this predating years predating that for example mm. so um, whilst whilst you're here give us the dates like when did you do your youtube pieces of, so the, of the original thought okay. and when did the metro stuff blow so, so the metro stuff was so it was last year it was last year may it was around last year may all this stuff blew up with that particular charity and everything else i've got a video of me talking about that in october 2016 on youtube i also have um a video of me talking about it a month before where I was talking in, um, at the University of Gloucester. Um, that's also on my um, YouTube channel. Um, so April 2019, I was talking about it, but they actually took it from a recording. Uh, they recorded the talk, obviously, and they took it from when I spoke about it in December 2018. So it's something I always use to try and help people understand that Mozart has died, obviously, um, he died hundreds of years ago, but the nature of scholarly work and institutionalizing knowledge, not that it needs the legitimacy, but institutionalizing the knowledge enables it to become part of canon and can last out, outlive us. So if everyone died tomorrow, you know, and aliens came down and looked, they would still have a source that they could access. So um, that's the reason why I use the example. And they were kind of trying to say, 
Mozart shouldn't be in, Stormzy needs to be in, but both can be in because it's all music. But yeah, so it's been an interesting journey because I'm long game. And then when I do share with people, they're not thinking necessarily long game. They're trying to grab and run. And, and so it's a, it's a very, very interesting and challenging journey. Let's put it that way. <laughs> so that's, that's really interesting. And then just at the, at the academia point, when you're saying that you want to study grime, what, mm-hmm. what, how was that taken? And I'm guessing this is the so- School of Sociology or something like that? Or School Sociology. of Social Sciences? Yeah, sociology. I'm fortunate that I had um, my the supervisors that I've had. So the supervisors are the people that help guide you through the PhD process. Luckily, I had supervisors that were enthusiastic about my idea. Um, so if anybody ever wanted to go off and do a PhD, you need to find supervisors that are enthusiastic about your idea. And so that was that was good um, in the, in academic terms. But relaying it to people outside of um, I suppose outside of my supervisors or outside of people that were doing research, maybe on music or maybe on, on race, they just couldn't see like, that's, that's like some low ghetto. Like what are you, what are you doing? How they couldn't make the connection. Why, why are you wasting your yeah, education? Why, I, why are you right. wasting this? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So there was that. And then, I mean, I even had somebody that assumed that I must fancy somebody in the scene. And I thought to myself, I mean, I didn't, yeah. And I just thought to myself, why would I dedicate six years of my life to studying something because I fancy somebody in the scene? That that's not even mm. logical to me, you know. Um, and then because I had a spiritual element in it, I mean, I very rarely spoke about the spiritual element involved in the whole thing as well. So it's been a very interesting journey. Let's just put it that way. Of Thought experiments and ideas that, you know, one is all the way possibly to the left and one is all the way to the right. And I can begin to make the connections. But I realise now that not everyone can. And then if they do grasp something, they might want to just capitalise on that, which is not for the greater good and the caring, which is what I'm about. So it's it's very interesting. And I think... I, that's uh, for me. That's absolutely like you, the first twenty minutes ish. You, you just <laughs> come in with a with with a load of big hitters there, and and I think like the 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 biggest takeaways. Um, and to start with the, the jockey one, which is um, there must be something wrong with people if people think that fangirl moments is what's going to make someone do a PhD. So people are like sadly really really misinformed. Yeah. Um, but also the ability to join the dots is a massive part of things. And sometimes you're not wrong, you're just too early. Yeah. And when you are yeah. too early, there's an element of login and um, demonstrating and sharing your work. Because yeah. if you don't, there are people out there that need the attention and yeah. they may accidentally get credited for actually yeah. your original thoughts. So there's a role there for all of us to document our thoughts more. And yeah. it's not even necessarily a selfish act or an attention seeking act. It's it's a it's almost a, a historic responsibility for those yeah. that are yet to come. Yeah. So that was one of the things that I have done is I've tried at least to make myself visible, mainly on Instagram, but try to make myself visible, try to make my work visible. Um, but again, because people don't understand the the vulnerable position someone ahead of their time can be, it's seen as oh she's got her degree she's bougie now she thinks she you know it's kind of seen as me bragging or boasting but it's actually a protective thing so the, i mean yeah there's, there's there's lots involved in that yeah and i'm really interested in that actually because i think that's a huge part of leadership i think um the fact that you've actually uh, almost uh, um aligned what so in in in, in my in, in in the businesses that i run and and with the team I always say to them that we've only got two types of behaviors, attacking behaviors and defensive behaviors. Mm -hmm. So what I like about my team is we've got people that are all about operations and are things in the right folders and, you know, are things scheduled right. And Mm -hmm. I always say that that's good, but those are the things that the customer will never see and your potential audiences, your fans, your relationship, Mm -hmm. it's irrespective. Then there's the attacking stuff, which is what visibility is about. And part of the reason why people like order is because of, you know, the, the anxiety that chaos invokes, etc. But what's also interesting is that if you actually also want certain things, you've got to avoid defensive behaviors. And not putting your voice out there is a defensive behavior because yeah. you're overthinking 
what people might say, what if you misunderstood. Um, mm-hmm. And as a quick side note, the best thing I've seen probably, I've, I've been of this brain or this mindset for since I was about 14. And the best news that I was trying to share with people is if people like Nike and H&M and et cetera can get it wrong, that means we all have a chance. And that also mm-hmm. then also means that even if you do get it wrong, the, the judgment is temporary because it's only a yeah. matter of time before somebody else screws up more than you. Yeah. But also, the like, you know, why have the audacity to try and live a perfect life when we are fractal beings in a chaotic yeah. universe? So, yeah, audacity is maybe a strong word, but like, what is wrong with getting things wrong? Like, yeah. what's the point of existence if you can't feel your way towards the right answer? Um, so I always try and encourage that. But talking about that visibility and, and digging deeper, what's the hardest part about being seen? Um, the hardest part about being seen for me is sometimes it can be the expectation that people put on you. The judgment, I don't think really um, bothers me that much because... I know what I know, you, I'm doing what I'm doing. You can doing. live with it, you can manage it. Yeah, I can manage that. But it's, I don't know, I, I don't know if I'm using judgment and, ex, and expectation in different ways, but I think the hardest part about being seen, I think, is, so for those who ca- who are listening on audio then, I am a dark-skinned black woman. You can find me on, um, you know, on on the internet if you want to Google and see. But I'm a dark-skinned black throw, woman. Throw your plug in now and then we'll do it later. So what's your okay. socials whilst we're at it? Okay, so my website is drmoniquecharles.com um, and my Instagram, that's the one I mainly use, is neek81. So that's N for November, E-A-K-E-8-1. So you can find me on Instagram there. But um, okay. so I'm a dark-skinned black woman and, you know, if we th- think about it in terms of in UK, if we think about that, we filter that through obviously uh, race, class, gender, I'm a woman. I am, you know, most um, black people, for the most part in the, I suppose if we, if we start history, I mean, it starts from before Windrush, but if we look at when we kind of entered in mass numbers, um, you know, we were kind of put in the lower socioeconomic group. Um, if we think about academia, you know, people will still think, okay, it's, you know, it's a wealthy, it's, you know, white, it's older and all this sort of stuff. I mean, I don't necessarily look like an academic, um, well, people don't necessarily think that. So, you know, door knocker earrings, whatever. Um, and so the hardest thing about being seen is people can, because I look like this, it might be like, oh, well, you're not one of us anymore. So it's the interaction of the treatment that you may get because you're not one of us anymore. Or the, the assumption that I'm maybe rolling in it and living life large. Um, like, yes, academia is associated with privilege, but because you're in it doesn't mean that it's all rosy um or the expectation to always give your knowledge for free or to give your time for free i mean i get emails on a regular basis and people want things and what they want takes time to prepare and you know and there's just no kind of acknowledgement um and i do want to help but it's just it's just not possible it's just not possible and i want to do things strategically as you have probably you've realized now by the way i've gone about things so it's just it's just sometimes the interaction like the devaluing of what i'm doing seeing the value being placed on other things which is fine but when i know that the root actually was from here but there's no respect here but you value this and you know so it's it's hard it's, be, it's being seen and not getting the credit, I think, is is the most challenging thing for me. Being the eldest of however many and all that sort of stuff. I'm used to kind of being mm. the leader. Or, but, yeah, I think the not getting the credit is the hardest. Mm. And that's really interesting because I think, you know, you're describing what, you know, in, in sort of um, venture capital land or whatever is, is known as like the mental game. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. You're describing very much that. This is a there's a cerebral quality, there's a thinking quality to what we do as as leaders. Um, mm-hmm. What would you say is the best part of being seen? The best part of being seen is, um, you know, walking into a classroom, and then I stand up at the front, and then I open my mouth and introduce myself, and then students are like, whoa, or you know, I mean, some are like, oh gosh, who's this? But some are like, whoa, like 
this person, I feel like I can, can relate to this person. Or when I get emails from people, like I read your work, it really helped me with my, you know, my dissertation. Um, thank you for doing this. Like they can see, they, they, for the ones that can see the value of what I'm doing, um, or it's made me think about music in different ways. It's made me really like value my culture in a way. It's made me see my contribution, you know, to history. Those moments of realization for me, they're, they're, they're just amazing. And I like to be seen for the work I've done. And, and I suppose in, the, in, in relation to what I'm trying to do, I guess. Awesome. Okay. So part of your description is as a social psychologist, sorry, so uh, cultural sociologist, forgive yeah. me, and also a therapist. So tell us about that evolution because that's okay. almost also a niche in itself. Yeah. So um, I'm a sound therapist. Um, again, I suppose it, it kind of culminates everything together. So um, I... I'm interested in what makes people tick, hence the psychology and all that studying before. Although I didn't take it to, you know, it was it the, like the clinical or the, the BPS approved um, yeah, accredited yeah. thing. So um, there's that. Um, obviously, I enjoy singing. I enjoy music. Um, my work is about bringing value to um, to the culture, to the music, all of that sort of stuff. Um, but I also like the idea of music helping people or sound helping people. So because um, spirituality was an aspect I kind of brought into the PhD, um, not that you can necessarily completely conflate wellness, spirituality, emotion. I wanted to find ways that I could use music or sound or something to kind of help people. So um, then I started to train in sound therapy. So I specialize in tuning forks and using tuning forks to kind of... um, well, what they do, basically, the sound wave enters your ears, gets into the brain, and the brain releases chemicals and helps to flush your central nervous system and release tension and stress from your body, be it physical, emotional. Um, so I do that sort of work as well. Um, and I like that because um, I don't necessarily take on the emotions of a person in distress. The sound does it, and it does it much more deeply than I feel like I could ever do for that person. So um, I send my well wishes and all my kind of intuitive gifting with the sound, but it's the sound that does the work. And that's really, really interesting because, again, that's you adding a string to your bow and it's not just, you know, like almost like it's not a one-trick pony situation. It's, mm. it's I call it having an and. And for a lot of the young people I work with, I, I, I encourage them to have an and. So I always say, if you are a, a grime artist, why can't you be a grime artist and have yeah. a violinist or a saxophonist do stuff with you? Why can't you be a grime artist and maybe do things with the elderly? Yeah. It's not just about kind of that one play. So, and what's really interesting about your work is then there's aspects of well-being and then obviously cultural inquisitions. Um, when you sort of bring those two um, world, sort of worlds together, do you have to, as a, as that person that's, fundamentally leading yourself and, and it'll be interesting if you have any tribes or any followers um how do you code switch um i don't even know if i code switch really um because i see myself as a complex person and i just try to be myself as much as possible so you know when i'm teaching I'm teaching with my earrings in or if I've got a head tie on that day, it's that day. Um, You know, I don't necessarily start to talk like this to my students because I'm in an academic, uh, you know, I may change my voice when I'm doing meditation work, you know, with people to get them relaxed, ready to do the sound therapy. But I'm not, I'm always trying my, my best to be my authentic self. And I suppose this is a really nice conversation in the sense of, you know, the well-being, the sound therapy stuff is about care. Me, the academic work I do is about care. And so for me, I don't look like an academic. I'm not going to try to look like what people imagine an academic to be. I'm trying to take up space so that if you look like me and you've read my work and you rate me, which I hope you do, yeah, then you feel like, I can actually do this and I don't have to become a code switching, you know, and for me, it's, it's a, it's a funny, tricky line, but I try my utmost to take up space as much, being myself as much as possible. 
because that in itself is a political act. And I suppose that connects me back to my political science. The political is personal, or the personal is political, all that sort of stuff. So my political science masters. So it's like everything, when I go through life, everything I go through, I kind of, it's almost like, what can I learn from this? What can I learn from this? It's almost like my brain is, to be honest, I'm always thinking about something. So it's almost like I'm always trying to compute, always trying to add, always trying to make sense of things. How can this help me make sense of the social world? And so me turning up like this, is me trying to be my authentic self and I'm aware that it's also political. So yeah. Um, so I, I, okay. I don't, I don't feel like I code switch and I think I maybe can get away with it as well because of the nature of the things that I study. Whereas if I studied law, then the whole history of, you know, that as an academic discipline will kind of force me to conform, but I'm kind of helping to build a discipline um, that is not really a thing in the UK. You know, black music as an academic discipline is not... So I got a bit of freedom with how I want to show up. And, and that's actually... There's, there are probably two learning points in there, which is there are some industries where the legacy is always probably infinitely bigger than the human. And, yeah. and even if the human tries to push back, the, the, the industry or the system is, is a little too archaic for anything to happen very quickly. Yeah. Um, and then I think it also what's very interesting is, is though the beauty of having a niche means that within your niche, you get the permission. So you know the codes of academia, you know the, the good practices and the required practices to make sure that your work is authentic, valid, yeah. reliable, and has all the right rigor. So you know yeah. how things are done properly, yeah. but you've also then been able to take a niche that allows the cultural integrity and you've yeah. almost gone, well, I'm, I'm going to make sure that you don't mess with my rigor and you also don't mess with that's the right. culture that's kind of come before me. So that's the beauty of kind of um, having a niche. So then thinking about that and, and this history of standing out, this history of being distinct, being a thinker, being a reflective practice, practitioner, which is how it sounds like you've been describing yeah, yourself. Yeah, definitely. What's the value and the power of writing books? And And then I'm going to evolve that into for the average person that's leading a social enterprise and such, like where should they be thinking about sort of um, books? What's the value of books for, for anyone who's like leading a movement, leading a business, leading an organization, um, especially the writing. So not just readership, yeah. but actually writing. So what's the value of writing a book for, for Dr. Monique Charles? Okay. So the importance of writing a book, which I'm still working on, but the importance of writing a book um, or writing books is, um, they, we live in a Western world. Western world prioritizes sight over sound anyway, right? So um, once something becomes written down, it becomes tangible in a way that sound, even though my area is sound, sound isn't tangible in the same way. Um, as long as you can kind of understand the language and are able to read, I can give you something and, and you can read it. If I'm trying to explain to you what grime sounds like and if you don't know what it sounds like, I, the only thing I can do is give you, I suppose, I suppose, give you the sound, but technology may make it deteriorate over time. You know, there's, there's, there's lots of things around sound. Yeah. I mean, it's more difficult. There's actually a really good point there, actually. And, 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 and sorry to interject because you've definitely got some things like pinging in my brain. That's a very interesting point, which is there's something about data that mm -hmm. is permanent, a permanent record versus yeah. data that that's a little bit more fluid and it's yeah. yeah and it's really interesting that with storytelling if it's not recorded you've always got that element of maybe chinese whispers and it can always yeah, yeah. lose its flavor or take yeah. a different spin but the yeah. written word is a tiny bit more protected yeah um for the, the consistency of transfer of information but yep exactly yeah. and, and so and it's that for that very reason is what you know obviously we live in the west um, that is the very reason why, you know, Western thinkers, um, you know, could arrogantly say, you know, Africans didn't have a history because they had an oral, obviously they've had an oral tradition and, you know, messages, but because it wasn't written down, they discredited it. And I, it's not to, and I'm not necessarily agreeing with the discrediting of oral history and sound. I mean, that's my area. Um, but there is something about, especially if we are living under this framework that prioritizes sight, that prioritizes these things and preserving knowledge, there is something to um, be said about doing that as well. Not, not 
mm-hmm. only, but as well. So there's an importance in doing that as well. So there's that. Um, but again, writing itself is not, I mean, it's important, but it's what you write that is important. Okay, because and I don't really want to I'm going to have to be careful how I say this, because I know that obviously you are probably aware yourself being a leader. You have people waiting and watching and trying to grasp what they can. And I've already been stolen from. So what you write is really important. Right. So how I will say this is I will tell you what I've done so far. Right. So I was writing a PhD on grime. Now, there are different ways that you can go about this. You can write a descriptive piece that describes everything that happens, or you can write something that gives you an an insight um, to understand. So you can describe something or you can give somebody the tools through writing to help them to understand how things operate, how to make sense of things, yeah? So you're giving them kind of like what the method is or... um, again, or what the theory is so that people can unpack. And then all the descriptive stuff that anybody else writes, you will be able to measure it against the benchmark, yeah? So if anybody's writing anything, it needs to be a, it needs to be a benchmark thing. In academic terms, you will talk about concepts, we'll talk about theoretical frameworks, we'll talk about methodological approaches. So how do you approach that? So for example, I could write, what example you gave earlier um, about, you know, stack them high, sell them cheap and all this sort of stuff, right? So I could write about, oh yeah, I've got this business, stack them high, sell them cheap, whatever. I'm not going to do that. I'm just going to make sure that I've um, got just what I need just to sell, just, in, um, you know, whenever I need it, whatever, right? So as a theory, if you think about, I think it was Japan after, you know, is it Pearl Harbor? My, my history on that thing is not great, right? They developed a technique so i suppose a conceptual framework yeah. a it's called just in time so so i can describe oh yeah this that and the other with my business and i'm going to get things just when i need it and you know drop shipping or you know you can write all of that but at the end of the day the blueprint is just in time yeah so when you're writing things you have yes. to write yeah. things that can accommodate all the descriptive stuff let me just leave it at that i don't want to say any more than that um, I know it's a bit, it might be a bit abstract. Okay, okay, okay. okay. It might be a bit abstract. Cool, but yeah. I, I know yeah. that since I've started to talk to people about developing concepts and things, people are now trying to do that, mm. which is fine, but mm. it's not necessarily um, innate or natural to them. That it's just a new, and you let me do something mm. to kind of, yeah, so I, I don't a know about that. Yeah, I'll just leave it at Okay, that. that's a really interesting point. And, and, and yeah, no, 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 that's fine. And, and perfectly, perfectly respectable. So um, part of where that kind of question was leading to, and this might be probably our, our penultimate, if not um, final question. Um, mm. We were doing a, a documentary with uh, a range of uh, leaders and a range of thought leaders and even arguably influencers in the region. Um, around the, the challenges of Black History Month. So we were working with um, West Midlands Police on that commission piece. And uh, in one of our interviews and uh, collaborations with um, Dr. Martin Glynn, who's uh, a very yeah, yeah. well-known um, yeah, lecturer, uh, writer, author, um, uh, and he's kind of taken perception and what he was saying, and this is credit to him, and, and the, the conversations that were being had was the value of books and writing with sort of communities um, where communities maybe write their own um, mm-hmm. and, and such like that. What are your thoughts on organisations writing their own books? Uh, because there's a whole world that says as well that your book is like a business card. It's just yeah. a longer form. So that means that if no one can meet you and understand who you are and what you do, the book can do a lot of that for you. Yeah, yeah. So for organizations that maybe have been around five, six, seven years and, you know, it's very hard, it's, it's, you know, it's complex for them to put everything they do on a poster. He, he, his thoughts and a lot of other people's thoughts are books are a complementary factor. Yeah, I would agree. With take. That. I would agree with that. I think they're a complementary take. Um, ultimately, they need to connote or need to suggest the ethos of the company so that people get a feel for the company, not, it's got to have some descriptive stuff. It was founded here, this and all that sort of stuff. But what is that ethos? The same way you've given me the three care um, strands that you have, like there has to be an ethos. So mm-hmm. if I never met you, if I picked up the book, um, then, you know, I would get a sense of that. 
Um, so yeah, I think books books are important. They really are important. I know people don't necessarily read them as much now, but you can get them on audio book and all sorts of different formats, but you need to have that there, definitely. And what would you say is a smart way for said organisations to integrate and work with academia to, to get their work better known or to get their work sort of validated um, or ratified? Um, I think... I mean, there's a whole decolonize the curriculum movement happening at the moment. Um, so there's that. I, I don't know. I mean, lots of universities have an outreach department. I think this I'm now feeling like I'm kind of not in my lane. So this is just just mm-hmm. just my kind of mm-hmm. um, human opinion, human opinion. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I just I always like to make sure that, you know, when I feel like I'm out of my lane, I disclose that because there's nothing worse than me. You know, be like, yes, yes. And this and, and, you know, and kind of speaking yeah. out. Of and then my, seven like, years later, somebody's like, you told me. Exactly. So um, when it comes to um, universities, I mean, they have to change. Yeah, they fundamentally they have to change. How they are actually going to? I mean, I know there are lots of academics at the moment that are doing the work, and I, um, that are doing the work. But can I be cheeky and offer sort of a, a, yeah, a complimentary? Give me, yeah, yeah. Okay. Cool. So, so there's an aspect, or there's an argument, basically saying this is as as as, as similar to if you're trying to influence and work with policy, which is fundamentally. People, uh, social enterprises, small businesses, etc., should engage with universities and maybe even make themselves known to say, "Look, university, you've probably got to do some outreach projects. Our organisation's probably interested in okay, being yeah, part yeah. of any bids you write to go and find people." The other aspect is even just being like an advisory talk, inviting them to speak to communities, etc. Mm-hmm. There's one thing that I think is a particularly exciting um, uh, to me, and I was kind of like, as we were speaking, and I've thought about this. Um, sort of in the past that along the lines of that getting and inviting um academia because again i'm thinking of academics not necessarily the institute but the individual i'm of the mind that so i paid six thousand pounds to do my master's out of my own money i was working yeah. part-time etc i'm now of the mind that uh, this is this is going to be yeah i'm going to say the arrogant version and i'm going to say what i really think yeah, like, yeah. like the rest of it i'm of the mind that potentially people like you Mm-hmm. or I will be in a position where a parent is going to mm. look at the university fee and mm. say, actually, I'd rather pay Dr. Monique Charles or I'd rather pay Kit £4,000 instead of the mm. £6,000 for them mm. to just take my kid on for a couple of years mm. and he just do, does stuff for them because the network that they're going to build and the actual institute enterprises and the experiences that they're going to build is more or less what they'd get, like, you know what I mean? Or probably even better yeah. than a university because university can't guarantee work, but they're yeah, yeah, taking yeah. money for the knowledge. So now that, that's the arrogant version when I put you and I in. If we mm. replace you and I with, say, Jeff Bezos, uh, mm. Mark Zuckerberg, mm-hmm. um, you know, Carlos Slim, who's meant to be one of the richest guys, Lakshmi Mittal, who, who are all, you know, some of the top 10, 20 richest people in the world. If, if we said, would you pay those people to take your kids on um, as their mentor and graduation, the answer is yes, because those guys can guarantee your kids will get at least 35k in one of their businesses or mm. their partner businesses just straight off. So that's where I kind of think that there's an opportunity there with academia where maybe communities need to start thinking about pooling money together and start mm. to extract people like you down downwards to say, look, can we just commission you to look after our work because fundamentally that's what universities are doing universities are the pay, pay booth if you think about it you're the talent they've got the brand they're the house but mm. you come out of the house they've only got the brand but your your individualness is probably what in the, you know what i mean i believe yeah yeah, yeah no, I, understand that. Grand a year, I believe it'll be a top, yeah um it's radical no no the thing is for me that can, I mean, that can work, right? Um, as you were talking, I'm because for me, I always do a big picture thing, big picture thing. So when you started to talk about Jeff Bezos and you know people with money that could fund it, then I thought, okay, so this can be a macro situation. My only concern about that is um, one of the things that my dad said to me is study what you enjoy, just do study what you like for what you like sake. 
Now, the way that academia has gone, the way that, uh, you know, the way that just the, the world we live in has gone, everything is always connected back to money. Is there going to be a job at the end? Now, that would, I mean, um, that model will guarantee the skills and everything else. But then where is the room possibly for innovation? Because if I, for me, a PhD in grime ha- is not going to guarantee me anything. You know, fair enough, out of it, I've developed some, some theories and stuff so that that's going to be, you know, working its way through institutions nationally, internationally, all of that sort of stuff. So that's great. But it's not going to guarantee me anything. It's just that I, it's, it's care. It's knowledge for knowledge's sake, if, if you want to call it that. Um, so that is my only. It can definitely work. So I'm not against the idea. Do you know what I mean? But that's that's my concern for those people that think, oh, I like, um, I don't know, flowers or, or I don't know, it's something random. You know, yeah, yeah, but I think that's where I'm coming from, which is once you once we start to understand the value, which is again, it's a relative thing. There's always going to be room for academia and even university, irrespective of academia. Mm. academia. So there's always going to be room for universities for specialisms. But like you say, that's a perfect one. Flowers, say equine studies, arguably Mm. football studies, Mm. pay nine grand to a university where the actual work is so vocational vocational, thank you so for anything that's vocational it Mm. is way more pragmatic to just put them like to get taught by to get taught by someone who's functionally doing it and entrepreneurship is vocational it isn't academic it's very vocational like you've just said whether it's um, horticultural studies arboriculture um even like farming like Mm. yes there's room for lab work and academia but not five days a week it's mm. way smarter for you to kind of find the top three, four people, put, mm. you know, put all of that university money. Remember, it's nine grand a year for three years. Yeah, like, yeah. trust me, I, I mean, I believe that there'll be a lot of like people that would, can create, I mean, and by the way, the crude version of it is all of these um, coaches online. So all of these coaches get yeah, teams yeah. of sometimes three up to about 21 people, just literally getting people into a funnel in order to attend the course. So yeah. if a prominent leader literally creates a university around themselves, it's mm. very doable. But like you say, the guarantee has to be that you're getting access to the person. You're not selling them a, a BS course and then yeah, leaving yeah. them to go figure it out. They've got to come in your organization. They've got to touch real things, feel real things, two mm. years worth of yeah, actual yeah, learning. Need- with uh, So there's a guy running something called Mission U. And his okay. version of that is where you do get guaranteed a job um, that's something like $35,000 or something like that, but you're guaranteed a job at the end of it and you get to work with the top um, sort of banks and startups. So he's got okay. relationships with, say, your Ubers or the equivalent of your Ubers and, and all of that. And yeah. he then, yeah, fundamentally, people come into to the course for free. They spend mm. two years moving around the different big, big organizations, okay, no yeah. degree. And then at the end of it, they they get work and then he takes something like two percent of their income for a certain amount of time but okay. again two percent of you know getting 70k a year 40k a year whatever mm-hmm. it's so it's not like the money's discounted it's just really interesting what happens because universities take the money first with no yeah, promise yeah, yeah. this guy is basically saying i'm actually going to take the money after and i'm mm-hmm. giving you all the promise and i think that that's where i think academia and academics if they're united you, mm. there could be a really interesting piece of disruption. And then I think that taking that to communities where maybe the individuals can't afford you yet, but we as social mm. enterprises potentially can start to put, you know, four or 500 quid together just to get you guys in house a little bit more. Mm. I think that there's, there's something yeah, interesting there if we start. Yeah, I, I think there is a possibility. Also, I don't know if you've heard of um, the free black university. That's just, I mean, I, it hasn't, I don't think it's actually um, got any content no, up at the moment. But it's um okay. it's relatively new. They did a crowdfund. Um, it's headed up by Mel's Orusu, and they want to put free resources and all that sort of stuff. So people are starting to think about new models. Um, mm-hmm. I think at the moment, from my understanding, it's only um, certain institutions that have the. It depends if you want a degree. It's only. Institution, institutions that are able to kind of give you that that validation so mm. i've worked in institutions where they do the delivery but the degree is actually awarded it's by accredited somewhere else yeah, yeah exactly so, yeah. so so it depends on if that is important to the person or how 
that can be worked mm. around um, mm. if if you want a degree to yeah. be part of the the process. Yeah, yeah, yeah. As a teacher, I already know that game. Like uh, yeah. making units work for you and and transferring units and all of that. It's it's not as complex. But you're right though. There's only a few gatekeepers that will mm-hmm. ratify something. But yeah. the good news is wherever there's money, there's a solution. So yeah. the, the bigger question is, is there enough money to make, uh, make the solution? Um, cool. You know what I mean? So yeah. um, anyway, I'm going to end our talk there. I think for me, it's been very riveting. I think your story about being a free thinker who in, in part, you were able to tell us the story that there is fear, there is anxiety, but you moved forward anyway. And yep. then you're all, you've also been able to kind of highlight that, you know, you're still figuring it out yep. and in your figuring it out, you found certain ands you've added to yourself and you're trying to make yourself accessible to community. So um, to finish, can you just repeat how people can get in touch with you and how to, yeah, just like, yeah, how to get in touch with you. And if there's any two or three things that you're maybe interested in from the community, maybe you've got a question for them, or maybe you want to recommend a book. So you get to kind of end the, okay. the last sort of 30, 40 seconds with your socials and any asks and any recommendations for books. Okay. So you can find me again, drmoniquecharles.com. So it's just D-R-Monique-M-O-N-I-Q-U-E, Charles as in princecharles.com, you can find me there, or you can just type my name into Google. Um, if you just type Monique Charles Grime, I will be the first thing that comes up. Um, so you can find me that way. My Instagram is the main one I use. Um, so that is Neek81. So that's N for November, E-A-K-E-8-1. Find me there. Um, it depends. If you're interested in uh, Black Britishness, I'll just go to the to the standard, one of the, the ones that came out in 2016, Blackness in Britain, Kahindi Andrews, so he knows, um, and Lisa Palmer, they edited it. Um, and so there's different chapters about different aspects of Blackness in Britain, basically. So that's a good kind of generic one to start with. What I would like to say is sometimes there's value in what you do, even if you don't always know it. Um, and what you have to say and your voice matters, yeah? Um, so I think those are kind of the things I'd, I'd like to kind of leave you with. Because I think when I was doing the the um, thesis on, or the PhD on Grime and I was interviewing people, I was saying to them, you know, you made, you made history, you changed the soundscape, what we're used to, like back in the 80s and 90s, mainstream, didn't even know about a baseline. You know, you, you've shaped the British charts and it would take a moment or I'd, a moment for them to realise what I'd said because the mainstream narrative was telling them something else, basically you're worthless or, you know, that kind of thing. Um, or I'd ask them, oh, did you teach yourself how to use that? And in that moment, they realised, hold on, I've taught myself how to use all, you know, these different pieces of technology. And and I did this and I didn't even realise I taught myself. So, you know, there is genius in you. Um, but although there is genius in you, there are processes and time um, and things that you also need to learn to make the most of it um, in some cases. Um, especially if I speak from my experience, going through this long game vision and people getting snippets and then trying to run with those snippets, they'll only take you so far. So sometimes you need to take the time, you know, structures can be there for a reason if used properly and not abused, obviously. Um, But yeah, what you have to offer, what you can bring to the table is a lot, but just take time, be patient with yourself, try and see if you can master it. You can still step out, but, you know, try and see if you can master it as much as possible in any given moment and do it with love, integrity and care. Awesome. Yeah. OK, huge thank you to uh, Dr. Monique Charles. Um, yeah, it's been a, an enjoyable um, exchange of thoughts. Um, and yeah, like I think some of these learnings will be really, really useful to um, a lot of people. Um, and I'm hoping for us to be able to continue to, to speak some more. Um, for anyone who's following us, uh, don't forget to uh, 
you can see aspects of the full video if you can go to aspireforyou.co.uk. That's A-S-P-I-R-E, the number four, the letter U.co.uk forward slash leading hyphen communities hyphen podcast. Um, and you can follow us on a for ucic um, If you're interested in other things, um, especially pertaining to what we've spoken about around, say, bid writing and, and raising funds for your own social enterprises and aspects of thinking strategically about how to make a difference with people like Monique Charles, then please get in touch with us um, through our socials, a for ucic or hello at aspireforyou.co.uk. Thank you very much and have a great day. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to keep up to date with all things leading communities. You can follow Aspire For You at A4UCIC. To follow That All Media, search at That All Media. You can also join us on Facebook at Leading Communities Podcast. 